The very purpose which draws us together here, building a peaceful world, will be thwarted if a situation is accepted in which a government intervenes across its borders in the affairs of another with military force in violation of the United Nations Charter. We have to ensure the proper conditions for self-determination so that the citizens of Crimea, well, it's a good thing that at least they remember there is such a thing as international law. We're of the view that UNSC was not the right forum for such issues and they should be discussed bilaterally between India and Pakistan. I've come here to tell the UN, you've got to, this is a test for the United Nations. You are the one who guaranteed the people of Kashmir the right of self-determination. Welcome to Article 38, the official podcast for the International Law Society at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations. My name is Amma Tildri, and I'm the president of the International Law Society. Today, we have a special holiday podcast presented by two ILS members with the professor of ours regarding the importance of international law in the formation and history of the United Nations. My name is Shea Chikaron. I'm a first-year master's candidate specializing in international law and human rights and global negotiation and conflict management. My name is Franklin Shobe. I'm a first-year master's candidate specializing in international law in Europe. Today, we have Professor Catherine Tinker, JD, LLM, JSD. Professor Tinker is the inaugural Distinguished Fellow at the Center for UN and Global Governance Studies and was a visiting associate professor at Seton Hall School of Diplomacy. She teaches several international policy and law courses. She is the founder and president of an NGO accredited to ECOSOC at the United Nations, the Tinker Institute on International Law and Organizations, and regularly participates in summits, preparatory committees, and treaty working groups on sustainable development and international law at the UN. Professor Tinker also serves on the IUCN's World Council on Environmental Law, based in Switzerland as an expert. We are very excited to have you here today and look forward to the discussion. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm very honored by the invitation. I look forward to our discussion together. We wanted to start by discussing the formation of the UN. Specifically, what were the parameters that international law set about in the initial formation of the UN compared to the Kellogg-Bryant Pact prior to World War II? Well, I think there were several historical precedents leading up to the formation of the United Nations. So it's important to recognize that there were movements before 1945 to establish um, an international organization, participation, to address security issues, but also economic and social issues. So I refer, for example, even in 1899 to the Hague Peace Conference um, that was held. Uh, the building established for that event is the seat of the International Court of Justice today. Then the League of Nations, built out of great public opinion in the United States at the time the U.S. joined World War I, and the feeling afterwards that peace was very vital and had to be preserved and would take international cooperation so that this would never happen again. The League of Nations, based in Geneva, had organizational structure that was basically what we would recognize as the United Nations today and an international court of justice, the permanent court of international justice that in effect became the international court of justice we know today. So uh, let me just go back to say a little bit more about the League. 
Um, it was formed in 1919, 1920 as the um, aftermath of World War I, a diplomatic organization of states led by France, Italy, the UK, US, and Japan to keep the peace. Now, there was also a treaty in 1928, the Kellogg-Briand Pact that you referred to, Franklin. And this was a very important treaty, still important to go back to today. It was the Treaty to End All War. And I'd like to mention a book that was published by Una Hathaway and Scott Shapiro, The Internationalists, How a Radical Plan to Outlaw War Remade the World. And I think that I would just want to put in a plug for this particular treaty. Maybe it will help to guide us as we go into the rest of this century. Now, um, while neither uh, really prevented World War II, as we know, um, there were the seeds of the UN planted. The League had an emphasis, as I mentioned, on economic and social issues like global health, protection of minorities, and other issues that were really copied or modified by the drafters of the UN Charter. Now, who were the main players when the UN was going to be created? The leaders of the war uh, for the Allies. Yeah. We had FDR, Churchill, Stalin. Those are the same people who were meeting, designing, arguing over what this new United Nations would look like. First of all, the U.S. and the U.K. were united in saying that we could not separate security from these economic and social issues. And for the U.S. that meant human rights, anti-colonialism, human development, free trade. So think of what you know about FDR and the New Deal and what was going on in uh, America. And so you can see why those preoccupations were there um, after the defeat of the Axis powers in World War II. Russia was really security-minded. Russia thought that a United Nations should only be about security and it should recognize national interests above all. So you see, at that time, a real fundamental difference in those concepts yeah. that played into the tensions of the Cold War later on. And that was formative as the UN developed over the last 75 years, of course, too. Now, in addition, though, we had demands from smaller states. They were not left out of these negotiations at Dumbarton Oaks in 1944 in Washington, D.C., and then in San Francisco in 1945 at UNCIO, the UN Conference on International Organizations. And it was there that over two months from April through June of 1945, in that short a time, the UN Charter was created and then adopted. So that's pretty phenomenal, actually, for the days of international negotiations. The Law of the Sea Treaty took 30 years to negotiate or to actually enter into force uh, once it was open for signature. So these are, these are um, really watershed moments in international law and international relations we're talking about here. A few of the details of what was going on at UNCIO might be interesting for you and your audience because I was given an opportunity to do archival research on this mm -hmm. and to find the minutes and the negotiating history, if you will, the travaux préparatoires right, of the UN Charter. And it's very interesting to know 
the Security Council role was differentiated from that of the role of the General Assembly. In a very interesting way, the GA has, of course, all the member states of the UN, which were only about 50 in the beginning, and the Security Council then was given extra powers. Their resolutions have binding effect on all member states of the UN, not General Assembly resolution. And the Security Council was given a police role to enforce the peace. Now, how was that to be accomplished? A military staff commission, as a committee, was supposed to be set up, an MSC. Never was created, but that's in the charter. And that was to give the UN the ability to act immediately, which could be useful and could have been helpful in many of the issues that were confronted through these years. Also, um, the idea that there would be the five permanent members with the veto power is very critical. And there was great debate over this. What did it mean? Who should have it? When should it apply? And would anybody else get it? Well, what happened? Uh, for example, the United Kingdom argued that the veto power should not be available in the case where one of the permanent members is, is party to a dispute. Russia disagreed. They thought the veto should apply in absolutely every dispute. The US at one point was not sure, but eventually joined the UK. Nevertheless, the Russian view prevailed, and that won that dispute. And you can understand the impact of that and the reasons why, and in effect, how the veto power deters action by the Security Council in many cases. And so I'd like to emphasize the importance of the work done on the General Assembly side and ECOSOC, the Economic and Social Council of the UN, which in the Charter is given status as one of the primary organs of the UN. Mm. So this is a really, really important fact, and a lot of people don't know all the work that goes on on the economic and social side. And the hope that that will bring what FDR was originally saying, human development and anti-discrimination and human rights as a foundation for peace and security. And I would even go so far as to suggest that the Sustainable Development Goals illustrate that point. The 17 SDGs begin with the first goal to eliminate extreme poverty and only build up at the end to the rule of law in SDG 16 and partnerships in SDG 17. So you see how important these issues and how interrelated everything is. So that was the veto power. What else was added in the UN Charter? Article 51, a right of individual and collective self-defense, but only up to the point where the Security Council took action, so there's a limit to that. Article 71 was added that created a right of NGOs to work in and with the UN, to be part of the work of the UN, if accredited through ECOSOC. So there's the process that uh, was set up from the first day. Article 1992 and several sections after that deal with the International Court of Justice, and then a separate statute for the ICJ was uh, later adopted. And Article 97 and several articles thereafter treat about the role of the Secretary General of the UN. 
I'd like to say a little more about that. At the time of drafting the charter at UNCIO, the debate was over independence of the Secretary General. Would he have to answer, especially to the Perm 5? And Russia, again, said, no, the Secretary General should not be independent. It's a function of doing what we want, we the member states, and meaning we the five powerful perm reps on the Security Council with the veto. But no, the independence of the Secretary General was firmly established in the Charter in Article 100. And that led to, for example, through the leadership of Dag Hammarskjöld, especially as the great Secretary General, the creation of a sense of the international civil service. So the people who work for the UN, although they're citizens of countries all over the world, once they are employed at the United Nations, are independent and international civil servants. So they're part of the Secretariat, essentially? Yes, yes. Secretary General is like the CEO of the UN, right? And all the other employees of the UN and UN system are answerable. Now, individual, um, the UN system agencies like UNICEF and WHO and UNESCO, those also have their own charter and their own directors mm -hmm. and their own budgets, but they're part of the larger system. Secretariat, though, is what at the people who actually work at UN headquarters in New York or in Geneva or in Vienna. So the UN, as we conceive of it, you have the Secretariat, which is essentially career United Nations employees, and then the delegations are diplomats that are employed by member state governments, correct? Exactly. You are absolutely right. And that creates a certain partnership as well as a tension. Right? Mm -hmm. And then you have, as I mentioned through Article 71, the non-governmental organizations, the NGOs with their representatives at the UN. So with not the rights, of course, of the diplomats, of the representatives of the member states, but um, the idea is of all of these pieces working together to make the system function. Okay. Now, if there's one more entity, there's one more um, organ, if you will, in the Charter that's, that's been very, very important in history and illustrates how the UN has functioned and contributed greatly to the world we know today. And that is what I'm speaking about here is the Trusteeship Council. Uh -huh. And the important role that the UN played in decolonialization and welcoming the newly independent states as members of the United Nations. And once a state has been recognized and joins the UN, they are equal to every other state member of the UN. So that, again, is part of the independence and part of the balance that the UN represents. Okay. Now, um, we could use the Trusteeship Council today. Possibly it's been more or less dormant um, for some time. But there have been proposals to reactivate the Trusteeship Council on climate change or sustainable development. Now, we don't know, but, you know, that's a possibility. Just to wrap up this quick history from UNCIO um, in 1945 to mention that the first General Assembly met in London, actually. And there was discussion about where the headquarters of the UN were even going to be. 
A number of cities wanted it. The yeah. New York delegation got it. Okay. In part because uh, Rockefeller donated the land where the UN headquarters buildings sit now on First Avenue in Manhattan. But that became the headquarters. It took a little while to build all those buildings, of course. So in the meantime, the General Assembly continued to meet in Lake Success out on Long Island as their temporary headquarters. So to sum up this brief history of the genesis of the United Nations, we see that the formation of the United Nations in 1945 gave the world both a new treaty, the Charter, with high moral standing, drafted in good part by the U.S. and its allies, calling for world peace and economic and social action as well. Plus, the development of this international organization where diplomats could meet, negotiate, and create a safer world with justice and equity. And there I would like to just refer to the opening of the charter, the preamble. We, the peoples of the UN, determined to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women, and of nations large and small, and to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. That's um, not a bad mission. Not at all. Professor, that is a very interesting uh, summation just of early UN history, its formation, the key nations involved in it. You mentioned international law as you were wrapping up that early history. From your perspective, uh, the UN is effectively the first international organization that has, you know, successfully used international law, you know, for the greater good in a certain sense, and, you know, been able to operate and run effectively. What, what are the mechanisms within the UN besides Security Council resolutions and General Assembly actions? What are the mechanisms, the organizations within it that are really concerned with international law in that realm? Uh, you mentioned in some of your pre show notes uh, about the International Law Commission, the Office of Legal Affairs. How do they work? Um, these are mechanisms that you mentioned, the Office of Legal Affairs and the International Law Commission, uh, where a lot of the work of deciding what issues should be taken up next, the progressive development of international law, if you will, and also the codification of existing international law. And so this is a really important thing. Now, the ILC, the International Law Commission, reports to the Sixth Committee of the General Assembly. And then the Sixth Committee reports to the full General Assembly. And so if there is going to be a study or recommendations or a draft of a potential new treaty, for example, right, or even a, a recognition that customary law has crystallized on subjects right, that might in turn eventually lead to a treaty or might remain as customary law that's binding on all member states who have that requisite consent that has been shown to be bound by customary law. Okay, so if you see all of that progression from the smaller group, which is 
individuals who were appointed, elected by the General Assembly actually, to serve on the International Law Commission. These are mainly law professors from all over the world, noted experts, recognized scholars, those who really have the ability to focus on what international law means, how it should be developed, what's needed to be added to the canon of international law. And they may meet for years and work on draft reports and finally maybe, maybe articles of what could become a treaty. And then as it makes its way up through to General Assembly consideration, the General Assembly has some options um, to wait for it to mature if there's a lot of uh, debate over whether it's appropriate or not to proceed. Or the General Assembly can appoint a preparatory committee to start the work of deciding to how or if to proceed to a treaty. So that's, that's one process of the creation of new international law or how the UN system can contribute to recognizing as law is developing in areas. Then um, the Office of the Legal Affairs is basically the law firm for the UN system. Right? These are the chief lawyers and they are asked to give legal opinions on everything. For example, one of my mentors was Oscar Schachter, who was a career legal officer at the United Nations. And after completing his service there, he moved to Columbia Law School, where he was a professor for a long time and influenced a whole generation of us as international lawyers. But Oscar at the time, when Oscar Schachter was a young lawyer starting out at the beginning of the UN, one of his tasks was to decide how many seats would be needed in the General Assembly Hall. Now, why do they need a lawyer to say that? Well, you have to think about what is the process of bringing in new members. Right. For one thing, the defeated uh, Axis powers from World War II were not allowed to join the UN because a state has to accept the charter and its peace and security provisions. And it was not felt immediately after World War II that that was likely. And they were not invited or allowed. But obviously a lawyer would think about, well, maybe someday. Or maybe a few additional states would want to join somewhere along the line. So Oscar Schachter recommended, oh, 75 seats should be enough. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, now today we know how many states are members of the UN? 193. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Plus two observer states, the Holy See and the state of Palestine. Mm. Yeah. But not with a vote, not full membership, observers. Okay, so um, this is a, an idea of how international law is just part and parcel from the beginning and through the early stages of designing the UN and in making it work. Yeah. So you mentioned before that there were some disagreements between various countries that were starting the UN and, and the rules that the UN might follow. Who were the key legal personalities involved in the UN's history? And were there any more significant disagreements as to the rules that ought to govern the UN? Well, think about a few of just the practical matters. Again, talking about the Office of Legal Affairs, could the UN enter into contracts? Could they hire people? 
Could they um, protect their employees if they sent them around the world? Um, in fact, an early envoy of the, of the United Nations was assassinated. And what could happen then? Who was responsible? How could they protect their own people? And what about the families of those victims? And so on and so forth. So every issue you can think about has to be resolved. Does the UN have legal personality, as it's called, right, to be able to operate? And it was found to do so. And then there was the matter of a negotiation with the US government, the host country agreement, it's called. So how would that work? Because diplomats come from all over the world, land in New York City, that's in the United States. So the host government has to admit them. What about visas? What about getting through the airport lines? What about transportation from the airport to the UN to participate in meetings there? And what about unfriendly nations who send their delegate, their ambassador, their head of state? And so there have been many, many legal disagreements over that uh, and who's allowed and if they want to be transported from the hotel where they're going to stay even to the UN for meetings. And that's led to the development of a number of hotels in the immediate vicinity of the UN so they can even walk. <laughs> or be driven one or two blocks, okay? <laughs> so those, that's minor. But that just illustrates to you the range of disputes and issues. Um, the other moments, um, there was pressure from certain member states on the UN and the Secretary General to take certain positions, or during the McCarthy era in the United States to reveal information about UN personnel to be part of a congressional investigation by Senator McCarthy, and the UN resisted. And I'm not going to comment on the rest of that story, but mm -hmm. then it goes on. The five permanent members have vetoed or threatened to veto a number of actions that led to inaction when the UN might have or could have. Perennially, there are efforts to increase the size of the Security Council and a number of states who vie for those temporary positions. Uh, and I thought it was interesting to mention that even in 1945, they commented on Brazil as a potential permanent member with the veto power. Was that to offer balance? essentially. Yeah. yeah, and to recognize the power and because Brazil had supported the Allies mm -hmm. rather than the Axis powers yeah. right. during World War II. So it was very much a military post-war mentality that created those early thoughts. Now the argument is, of course, that Brazil is an economic and social and resource-rich, population-rich nation that uh, is one of the BRICs that should be in the Security Council. Mm -hmm. And they do serve periodically as one of the 15 temporary members, but that changes. Do the temporary members have veto power? Not at all. Absolutely not. No, that's, that's the key, isn't it? Yeah. But they are members with a vote. So what about other issues? Payment or non-payment of assessments by member states? And what happens if they don't pay? Are there consequences? Okay. Another contretemps with the Soviet Union about losing their vote if they were in arrears on the assessments. 
than when the, the U.S. has been in arrears as well. Uh, it hasn't lost the vote either. So, I mean, there, there are many, many issues that can arise. Uh, plus, what about assessments for special operations when the peacekeeping missions began? When the UN sends the blue helmets, who pays and how much do they pay? And who contributes for, uh, troops to that? And without a military staff committee, as the charter imagined, who commands those troops? the contributing state, their own military command, and yet they're representing the United Nations. So today we're seeing many, many discussions and disagreements about um, accountability, who is responsible. And if we talk about state responsibility, which of course international law does all the time, it's a fundamental concept, the rights of states, sovereignty, but also the responsibility of states, what about the rights and the responsibilities both of international organizations. So those are some of the issues. I think budgets, well, those are just financial issues, but it affects how much work the UN can do and where it can work and under what conditions. The relief efforts, the humanitarian relief mm -hmm. in disasters and the aftermath or during civil wars to try to alleviate to death by starvation. It's uh, phenomenal how much work that the UN does on uh, refugees and humanitarian relief. But that's only with the consent of the state to allow UN convoys to enter the state and deliver food and water to civilian populations. Uh, you mentioned actually in your notes um, specific I guess you'd say personalities on the administrative side of the UN to include Dag Hammarskjöld, one of the first secretary generals, and who someone who recently lost actually this year, Sir Brian Urquhart. How important were these individuals in driving the UN forward, say, you know, through the 1960s and into the 1970s, and ensuring that it wasn't just a flash in the pan, essentially? Because it seems like and just in diplomacy in general, that the personalities of individuals involved are really, you know, important towards the trajectory of diplomacy, of international agreements, and so on and so forth. So, so could you just comment on that as well? Absolutely. I think that the moral power and the power to persuade is one of the UN's greatest strengths. And that depends on leadership. And so we have a few giants through history that we can see. Dag Hammarskjöld being one as Secretary General. Um, I think in many ways Kofi Annan as Secretary General is another. Um, but And who were the people that they hired, who worked with and for them, make a lot of difference in who's in the room. So my former boss, Sir Brian Urquhart, worked as a young man right after his military service as a British soldier in World War II, uh, worked for the new UN. And his boss was Ralph Bunch, another giant who through his force and intelligence and commitment designed basically the UN peacekeeping force idea. And the first mission of any note um, and, and effect that people study to this day was the mission in the Congo. And so with these personalities of Ralph Bunch, Dag Hammarskjöld as Secretary General, and Brian Urquhart as the eager young uh, 
international civil servant. And these are people with the highest moral caliber who are dedicated totally to the mission of the UN and give everything. So I think that the, the groundwork of the best of the UN can go back to that era and also what that did in making it possible to have the independence of so many states around the world. Again, coming out of that same era, right? And the real commitment to non-discrimination and the equality of sovereign states, regardless of size or economic standing. Yeah. You also mentioned Oscar Schachter in terms of discussing the uh, personalities within international law that were have been influential within the organization. Could you comment more on him as well as other international lawyers that you know of and many of whom you met that were influential within the UN throughout the second half of the 20th century? It, it's a little bit of an answer that depends on the great man theory, which I realize <laughs> we're saying. And there's a point to that I want to make about that. Um, through all of these eras, really until this century, there were not opportunities or even possibilities for qualified women to rise in any professional positions of note. A few here and there managed to get um, ASG positions, okay, Assistant Secretary General. But what you really want to get to is USG, Under Secretary General, right, where the power is. And that's where some of the people we're talking about reached, of course, mm -hmm. but there weren't women in the pipeline, mm -hmm. and they could get hired as secretaries, and this is a tale throughout societies through these uh, centuries, but I just want to say, in talking about the history, I am speaking about men, and exclusively men, because women who did work at the UN and were in the secretariat and did have very, very important influence in many programs um, were not rewarded with the kind of promotional opportunities that some of these great men were. I just have to make that clear. But what is true, the great men that I'm going to talk about created our modern American international law Right when they got here. Oscar Schachter, right, um, I've mentioned, Thomas Frank, and Theodore Marone. Now, these are men who, after their service at the UN, became law professors. Right? I've mentioned Columbia, NYU Law School as well, and continued using all of their contacts through the diplomatic corps and the UN secretariat to bring an academic perspective, their research and writing, their many books that applied to international law, and the generations of students they trained who in turn became professors of international law and try to continue sharing what they were taught with the next generations of students like you. Mm. So it's really a process. Um, Oscar Schachter called it the Invisible College of International Law. And I, I think that's an important thing to know. And it's now it's much more international because back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even or 90s, you couldn't get a UN document. It, there wasn't an internet. <laughs> Nothing was digitized. And individuals can't walk into the UN. So you had to be invited by 
perhaps um, one of the missions to the UN, or by someone who worked at the Secretariat, who would bring you into the building and then go to the library, and I'm saying this from how my research went for my doctorate, um, to get into the Dahlkammerschuld library to do research and locate actual UN documents meant that kind of personal contact, or doing interviews mm -hmm. with secretariat officials. And so I met a number of these people, both as my professors and as contacts I used in my research who shared their insights and their experiences. And that's kind of how it built up. And I, I think of this because one of the projects with Brian Urquhart um, that Tama Frank introduced me and I was hired to, to work on this research and writing project with Sir Brian was to study the succession. How is a secretary general chosen? This is just one more example. And this was in the 1990s. So the UN had been around already, you know, 50 years, and they were still talking about, well, wait a minute, how do we get a Secretary General? There's a five-year renewable term once, so the maximum would be 10 years as Secretary General. And that's how it had been done. And we stopped and looked at that. And Sir Brian wanted to know, was that a requirement? Was that legally mandated? Or had that just developed in some kind of in a way that diplomatic practice evolves. And so because it had been done, it was repeated every time. And the, his recommendation, based on all of his experience and learning, was this did not work. In part because it meant campaigning for re-election, which is not seemly, really, and it can hold back the work of the UN or lead to compromises that would not otherwise have to be made for political reasons. And five years he thought was too short for a leader to really put a new program or approach into practice. So his recommendation was a single seven-year term. But we had to find out, why was it five years renewable once? Could it be changed? And in fact, interestingly enough, it turned out that the first secretary general chosen was Trigiv Lee from Norway, and he was a labor leader. He had not been a leading candidate. I read some of the diplomatic memos that had gone back and forth at the time uh, from the British Foreign Office and from the U.S. State Department primarily. And no candidate had been acceptable to all the major powers initially. And as a compromise, they came up with Trigiv Lee, and nobody really knew him too much, and he didn't seem objectionable, and he was a leader in his country of labor unions, and so he became the first Secretary General. One term. Then we get another one. I mean, we go on through, and there haven't been very many. What is it, seven or eight now, Secretaries General? Or are we up to nine by now? I think we might be. That can be checked. Please check that fact. Um, but where I was going with this uh, was to say that in succession, um, Doug Hammerschold, who might have stayed longer or been asked to stay on longer, was unfortunately killed in a plane crash on his way to the Congo to meet with leaders and to try to help resolve that conflict during that first peacekeeping mission. Uh, 
So after that, uh, it just became custom, I suppose. Okay, five years, and then we'll renew you once, unless you've done something that the major powers really didn't like, and then it would be a single five-year term for some secretary general. And that's happened? Yeah, that's happened. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in contemporary decades, no. Uh, So that's been the general, and we've had some very good secretaries general, so um, the process has worked in that level. But um, Brian Urquhart felt, no, it was really time. It should be a search the way that any major corporation in the world looks for a new CEO, that the UN was so important and the tasks and the opportunities for leadership were so great for the role of the Secretary General that it was necessary to do a professional search for that top job and to give them seven years long enough to put their ideas into play and then stop. So there would be no campaigning for re-election. And that was the study that we put out in the early 90s. It was not followed, <laughs> I must say. It still has not been followed. Um, but with the uh, election of the current Secretary General, uh, there were a significant number of women candidates for the first time for Secretary General, in any numbers. and. What the Secretary General has done, Antonio Guterres, has actually appointed key positions, including in the executive office of the Secretary General. His Deputy Secretary General is Amina Muhammad, who is second in command of the entire UN system and very visible and very wonderful in her role. And then his top three um, executive positions within his own office are women from different parts of the world. So there is a change, and there certainly are ASGs in the pipeline, there are USGs, and someday there will be a Secretary General who's one woman. We definitely look forward to that. Yeah, you can only hope. (laughs) If you look back at the history of the UN, what were some key events that either highlighted the importance of international law or perhaps diminished it? Oh, there are so many. <laughs> well, in your notes, um, Could I, s- I believe the one that many would know is the Iraq case from 1990 and 1991. Mm-hmm. Maybe comment on that. All right. Well, this is a kind of a textbook case, if you will, because in what's called the first Iraq War, right? Gulf War, the yeah. Gulf War, <laughs> but the first one, because mm-hmm. there were two, right? Um, in 1990, 1991. When Iraq invaded Kuwait, this, under anybody's theory of international law, was a violation, a major breach of international law mm-hmm. from every perspective. One sovereign state invading the territory of another sovereign state and refusing to leave. Incidentally, there was also um, a burning of the oil fields with consequent environmental damage. I mean, there were lots of things going on, but this was the main focus. And the U.S. president was George Bush Sr., who had been the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. So he was familiar with the organization and how it worked and had a respect and an understanding for it. He went to the Security Council and followed the charter rules, right? And a significant part of the dispute resolution in the UN Charter, um, Charter Chapter 6, are peaceful means of dispute resolution, resolution mm-hmm. with 
it's a process laid out one step after the other to take before there's any consideration of use of force. And then the use of force is in a separate chapter, chapter seven. So it's really a guide on how to do it. And that playbook, that guide was followed by mm -hmm. the first President Bush. Then um, when peaceful means failed to resolve the conflict, yes, he sent US troops in, surgical strike, and came right back up. And this is seen as the proper way, even for a great power, to use the charter system and to turn to the UN and at least seek to reduce the tensions and try to resolve it short of military force. And it worked under, under Chapter 7, essentially. There was no you know, push to Baghdad, for example, after the, the parameters that the Security Council set out in the resolution were fulfilled. Absolutely. So there were a series of Security Council resolutions escalating at each stage through sanctions, uh, which didn't work either, right? Yeah. Uh, after mediation and attempts to negotiate failed. Yeah. So exactly right. It's classic. Uh, so the, the goal of the Security Council resolutions was the withdrawal of Iraq from Kuwait, and that was accomplished. End of story. Fast forward to 2004, and another <laughs> President George Bush Jr., the second uh, George Bush president. 43. Yeah, 12, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and a, a different story. Yes. A very different story. And that has caused a lot of scholarly ink to be spilled in writing about that. So I think that's enough said. <laughs> yeah, I did not two follow. Polls. Two polls did not follow the charter, did not avail the, the world the opportunity to try to resolve the situation. It was unilateral action without Security Council authorization for the use of force. There are a couple of other things you'd ask me, um, um, just to go back to some of these stars <laughs> or, or great uh, professors who had been great lawyers for the United Nations system. I just wanted to mention, uh, for example, Thomas Frank was part of UNITAR, which is the research and training arm of the UN Secretariat. Mm -hmm. So he taught diplomats and secretariat officials about international law oh. first, and then he came to the university and taught NYU law students. So this is a, a progression um, and a path, and that influenced a lot of, of later scholars as well and diplomats. Theodore Marone was also a professor at NYU Law School at the same time, and he became a judge of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Mm. Now, this was groundbreaking, because you were asking me about highlights, big moments in the UN history. I think the development of war crimes tribunals in specific conflicts was one of those watershed moments that led ultimately to the current International Criminal Court. And the idea that not only is there state responsibility, that there is accountability for even individuals who commit atrocities, war crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes of aggression. And this is an idea that in fact did come out of the Nuremberg Tribunal after World War II in Germany. Um, but it became now part of international law. And so this is another way that some secretariat officials and people who have committed 
their skills and insights, I think, is the predominant uh, story of the UN itself and how they can see challenges and try to find new solutions. Just before we close up, do you have any final thoughts on the importance of international law to the UN? Well, overall, I call the UN a success. Call me an optimist. I mean, that's not to overlook the problems and the difficulties, and there are many, and people are human. So I've been telling you about some of the great stories of the UN. Uh, there are some that aren't so great. There are scandals. There are people who give in to baser instincts. There are people who are corrupt and anywhere in the world and in any institution. And that is true, um, I think, throughout history. In fact, one scholar at, well, Columbia Law School had a seminar on the problem of peace. And in the 1950s already, they were trying to study the causes of war and conflict. This relates to the UN because principally the focus of this seminar was on the UN system. And Ada Bozeman, um, excuse me, Ada Bozeman of Sarah Lawrence wrote of five causes of war and conflict. Public opinion, she said, the collective mind, which would include government and ruling elites, was one. The problem of fear, war, poverty, and depression, including felt poverty and inequality in development. Mm -hmm. And finally, simply the individual cussedness of man. And so I think that kind of encapsulates what the UN system is up against and how it tries to hold the line and tries to alleviate human suffering in many ways. So how has it accomplished that? I think in stabilizing global society, we don't have World War III yet and it's been 75 years. That's not to minimize the many armed conflicts that have broken out and people who have lost their lives and civilians who have suffered. So that has not ended. We haven't had P5 conflicts is no. the key. That's mm -hmm. key. So in that sense, 75 years without World War III, I call a success. And recognition of the rights of vulnerable people in situations all over the world, groups who have not been acknowledged, who have not been given full opportunities for education, health, decent work, a clean and healthy environment now, or even the potential to contribute their ideas and skills. I think the UN is a forum where the peoples of the world, remember the charter? We the peoples, the peoples of the world can come to UN conferences and speak and some are heard. We need that, and we need the place where diplomats can come and talk to each other on the record and off the record, right? Walking through the hallways, going to the coffee lounge. That's where real diplomacy can take place. And that kind of trust that's necessary, getting to know others who are very different from your own, talking to people who don't agree with you and trying to find common ground. That's the United Nations. That's what goes on there every day. That is extremely valuable for the future of this planet. Well, it's obvious from my eyes that, and I think to Shays and perhaps to our listeners, that the UN cannot operate or exist without international law to govern its actions. At the same time, I would also argue, and 
Professor Tinkerman argued that the United Nations has strengthened international law as a field and given it more power, more teeth, perhaps. So while the UN's authority is limited, it at least has generally recognized legal rules that strengthen its actions and also strengthen the power of international law, which was sorely missing uh, pre-World War II. It's a far cry from international government, but it occupies its own valuable space that gives nations the opportunity to interact with one another and perhaps avoid war or in other cases come to a better understanding of one another. So thank you for coming on with us. Well, thank you very much. If I may just add a couple of points that I meant to say earlier, where the UN could still go. Mm -hmm. I, I thought of this when you mentioned it is not a world government. Well, no, there isn't a parliament. Right? There isn't, the General Assembly doesn't have the power to create binding law itself. Mm -hmm. And so it, there has been talk about citizen assemblies, about a global parliament. There are other proposals for global governance out there. And so I think we shouldn't finish our talk today without at least acknowledging that idea. There's also a concern for civil society protecting those mm -hmm. who are activists who speak out. Uh, that's been an, an ongoing problem. Some advocates say that uh, they call it the shrinking of civic space or civil space and the need to protect the defenders, those who do work for human rights, or the environment or whatever it might be. So I, I think that there are larger problems in the world today that the Charter itself may not have anticipated. And so one thing we have to ensure is that the UN has the flexibility and some way to grow or change to meet new challenges and to ensure that it really is a meeting place for all of global society. Yes. Well, I think the UN has unlimited potentials. Thank you for that addition to our discussion. Yeah, thank you very much for bringing that up. I think that's a very important issue to keep thinking about and keep discussing. It's always a pleasure, Dr. Tinker, whether it's in class or on Article 38. Thank you again. Thank you for having me here today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter, and subscribe to hear our future episodes.